Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Good afternoon and welcome to At Yale Live. I'm Eric Gershon. Our guest today is philosopher Shelley Kagan, a popular professor here at Yale and also in China where he's won a devoted following for his Yale Open course on death. Today we'll talk with Shelley about what death is, how he thinks about it, and we'll ask him some of your questions. Thanks for being with us, Shelley. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Shelley, death is a pretty broad topic. Let's narrow it a little bit. When you contemplate death, what kinds of questions are you not thinking about? What aspects of death do you not consider? Well, there's a lot of questions you might raise in thinking about death broadly. Uh, there are questions about grieving or the process of dying biologically, physiologically speaking. There's the attitudes we have in a society about the, the dead or the dying. I don't discuss such sociological, anthropological, or psychological questions. I think about philosophical questions concerning uh, what happens when we die, whether there's a soul, might there be some possibility of surviving the death of our body. Uh, there are questions about the ways in which death uh, is bad for us, whether immortality would be a good thing, whether we should be afraid of death, whether suicide is ever morally justified. Those are the sorts of questions I tend to focus on. Most of us avoid death as long as we can. Most of us don't think about it all that often. What is the value that you have found in thinking long and hard about it? Well, it's one of the central aspects of the human condition that not only that we're alive, we're alive now, but that our life is followed by death. And throughout human history, as long as people have been thinking, they've been trying to understand death. We've been trying to understand death. To try to find out, on the one hand, whether anything's going to happen after we do die, and on the other hand, whether the fact that we're going to die should affect how we live. These are two of the central issues that everybody faces. So how does a professional philosopher go about philosophizing uh, about death? What questions must or ought to be asked in order to come to any satisfying conclusions in your own mind about what it is and what it means for us? Well, methodologically speaking, I think about death the way I think about any philosophical topic, which is basically thinking. Philosophers uh, don't do empirical research typically, although there are a few that do. Mostly what we do is we gather the information we can, whatever arguments or thoughts people have had, and we try to think about these in a rigorous, systematic, critical way, asking ourselves what kinds of positions can be put forward, what kinds of arguments for them can be uh, put forward, how we might respond to objections to those arguments. So that's how I think about any philosophical topic, and I think about death uh, in the same way. Of course, the thing about doing philosophy is that you don't get definitive answers in the sense that you're never going to find answers to these questions that all people will agree to, or for that matter, even all philosophers. It's a sense in which philosophical questions are the questions that almost by definition we have a hard time trying to figure out how to make progress on. And so although there are a number of positions in philosophy in general, death in, with regard to death in particular, where I've come up to answers to my own satisfaction, it's not really as though there's anything where I'm completely 100% satisfied in the sense that I think I could persuade everybody or I have answers to all possible worries. So talk to us a little bit about some of the conclusions you have drawn. Well, my own view is that, uh, I suppose most centrally, that there's no such thing as a soul, at least if what we mean by a soul is something immaterial, something non-physical, something distinct from above and beyond the body. Most people, at least, uh, believe in a soul or the possibility of a soul, uh, and then that holds out for them 
uh, the, the, the real possibility that something might continue after the body dies and decays. I don't believe there is a soul. I think what we are, what a person is, is simply a body that's able to talk as we're doing, to think about questions like, like we're doing, to communicate, to make plans, to fall in love. Uh, so I think we're just bodies. Uh, and as a result, the death of our body is uh, the end of, the death of my body will be the end of my existence as a person. And I think that's the central thing to realize about the nature of death from which much of the rest follows. So what are some of the consequences for the way that you perceive your own life or you live your own life, uh, you know, that derive from that belief? Well, I suppose most centrally, if you believe in the possibility of an afterlife, then you might think that the central goal here in this world is to live in such a way as to maximize your happiness, uh, get into heaven rather than hell uh, in, in the world to come. Since I don't believe there is any kind of afterlife, the focus certainly needs to be this worldly. We have to then ask ourselves, how should I live with an eye towards how I am interacting with others and what I'm achieving for myself in, in this world? Hmm. Do you find that your students in your philosophy classes come to have some of the same, um, come to some of the same conclusions that you have, or do you find that they're wildly divergent? Well, I don't survey the students, and so uh, it's not as though I can say, okay, before they hear the lectures, here's what they're thinking. After I hear the after they hear the lectures, here's what they're thinking. I do know, based on conversations I have with the and students, their papers, presumably, and, and their papers, that no, many many students don't share my views and don't end up sharing my views. On the one hand, I want to say that's fine because, of course, the primary goal uh, for me as teacher of the class is to get students to think critically about these issues, to take a hard look at some of the views they may have held and ask themselves whether or not these views will withstand critical examination. So as long as they're doing that, it's okay with me if they don't end up agreeing with me. Although, on the other hand, of course, I believe that my views are correct, and so I'm, I'm upfront with them about this. Uh, in the death class that I'm going to, to, to lay out the arguments as best I can and I hope they'll end up, if they don't already agree with me at the, at the outset, I hope they'll come around. But I don't actually have any statistics as to how many minds I change. Let me ask you a question that is perhaps less an intellectual question but I think a very human one. Do you ever find thinking about death so much depressing? And if not, why not? I don't actually find it a depressing topic. I find it a fascinating topic, and I, and I greatly enjoy uh, discussing these issues both in the class and, 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 and writing about them. Uh, in the class and, and in my writings, I try to keep a fairly light tone. It's a, it's a heavy subject, but we don't have to discuss it in morose or ponderous academic uh, manners. Uh, so I try to keep a, a fairly light touch. But, but that's not to say that Death isn't itself a serious subject, or in various ways, a, a sad one. I mean, the, the, the loss of a, of a loved one is, is a horrible thing to undergo, and we all face that. Uh, the fact that I'm going to die, that you're going to die, is in many ways uh, sad, because I think we're going to die, in typical cases at least, we're going to die well before we've exhausted the riches that life can offer us, and so that's horrible. So there are many sad aspects of death, but, I, but it doesn't make me sad to, to think about and to teach it. So have you come to a conclusion uh, in your own mind about whether death is good or bad, given that it can have some what we think of as 
certainly has negative repercussions for those of us who survive, for example, loved ones who, who died before us. Right, so that's a very complicated question, which let me just touch upon a couple of aspects. First of all, is the very fact that we're going to die bad? Uh, would immortality be good? I suppose that most of us believe that immortality would be good, and it's precisely because of that fact or that thought that we hope or maybe even believe that we have a soul so as to hold out the prospect of immortality. My own view, not unique to me, but my own view is that immortality would not be good, that if we actually lived forever, uh, life would become tedious, dreadful, horrible, uh, a punishment rather than uh, some sort of reward. So the fact per se, of our mortality is good. But that's compatible with thinking that nonetheless we all die too soon. Uh, the fact that after thousands or tens of thousands or however long it might be uh, of years uh, I might grow bored doesn't mean that I will have grown bored, grown bored by the time I die. And my own view is, no, I'm, I think the world's such an amazing place that I wish I had at least hundreds of years more, uh, probably far longer than that. And so I think one aspect of death that's bad is the fact that most of us die while there's still good things in life that could be coming our way. Let's take a few questions uh, from the public. Okay. We've got one from a gentleman uh, called Itai Metal, and he emailed us this question. I'm going to read it to you. Death is often conceived as the irreversible loss of life as constrained by the limits of modern medicine. The loss of all brain function for a person is typically thought of as the line beyond which death begins because there is no current scientific means of reversing it. But if that too could be reversed by some future science, what would it then mean to die? I think that's a, that is indeed it's a wonderful question. What exactly should we say is the, is the conceptual definition of death? The empirical criteria that we use to determine when somebody's dead may vary. It used to be when the heart had stopped beating, when the person had stopped breathing. Uh, now, as the question remarks, it has to do with when brain functioning has ceased. But, but those aren't what it is to die per se, we might say. And my own view is that to, to die per se is to lose the ability for the body, which is all we are, just bodies that have abilities to do things. So to die is to lose certain subset of the abilities we normally have. In particular, the sorts of abilities that are tied to being a person. The, the sorts of things I was gesturing towards earlier, our ability to communicate, our rationality, our ability to plan, to be creative, to fall in love, to write poetry and the like. It's the, it's the loss of those abilities. Now, the crucial point here is it's not the temporary loss because, well, you know, when you're asleep, you're not reciting poetry, you're not communicating. But we might say, pushing a little bit harder, you're still able to do those things. And so the question is, when are the bodily structures sufficiently broken that it can no longer be done? Now, I'm inclined to think that there could, in principle, be scientific breakthroughs such that it wouldn't be true to say, it wouldn't be accurate to say the person never really died. In principle, it might be accurate to say the person did die. The abilities were lost. The, the body was broken. Uh, but for all that, uh, we are now able to bring the person back alive. To give a... a, 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 a either fanciful or religious example, imagine the judgment day comes and God resurrects the dead. The bodies have decomposed uh, and the atoms then get recollected by God. He reassembles them in the right way and turns the body back on. The correct thing to say in that situation is not that we were never really dead at all. Rather, God 
resurrected the dead. He brought the dead back to life. Now, if somehow, amazingly enough, science were to make similar technological breakthroughs and we were to be able to similarly reassemble the atoms, that would be turning the person back on. But it wouldn't be correct to say he hadn't really died. So not all the scientific breakthroughs that the questioner was asking about mean that the person wasn't really dead. So, and you, you, you referenced this in some of your earlier remarks, but what would, what would infinite life mean then? Well, of course, one thing when we think about immortality, we have to get clear about how are we imagining it. If we simply imagine extrapolating out life on the kind of curve that we currently have, where old age brings sickness and disease, loss of memory, uh, or other cognitive functionings, then of course it's easy to believe that immortality would be just dreadful. This is a familiar point. Uh, Jonathan Swift actually has a quite interesting passage in Gulliver's Travels where he imagines Gulliver discovering a little subset of people who live forever, but indeed they live in this horribly degraded state, and it's, it's horrible. Clearly when people imagine the desirability of immortality, they're trying to correct for that. And so the real question is, can we imagine any way for immortality to be good? And you know, throw in whatever uh, fantasy conditions you want to put in, that we're always healthy, that we're always wealthy, that we can have whatever it is you want, that you can change your career, uh, change your partner if that matters to you, whatever it might be. Uh, is there any kind of life describable at all that you could really imagine being attractive for a billion years, a hundred billion years, a trillion years? Uh, all I can say is when I've done my best to try to imagine such a life, I'm unable to do it. And to simply say, oh, of course it would be desirable, I think is to fail to face the question. Let's take another question from the public. This one is from Shoshana Kaufman. And she asks if you're familiar with the work of Rabbi, uh, Rabbi uh, Dovid Gottlieb, a philosopher who's inspired her. Whether you are or not, I would ask um, how you as a philosopher approach the question of death differently from, say, a theologian. Good. So no, I, I don't know that rabbi's work. Uh, so how does a philosopher in general think about questions like this uh, as opposed to a theologian? One thing that a theologian has access to uh, is what they take to be revelation. At least typical theologians have revealed truths. Uh, you might think that the Bible is in some way divinely inspired or the Koran or what have you. Uh, and you then will also typically have some kind of tradition within the church or uh, your, whatever your religion might be that has answers, has put forward answers. And so a theologian can appeal to those kinds of authorities. A philosopher typically, again there are exceptions, but typically tries to think about questions like this without making use of these kinds of religious answers. It's not so much that we're dismissing the religious answers as we're dismissing the appeal to religious authority. And so we go about asking ourselves, what would we believe about these questions if we limited ourselves to what we could know using human reason? It's perfectly compatible with that to think that there are these additional uh, sources of information, but then that raises a whole host of other questions, namely, do we have reason to believe in God? Do we have reason to believe that the Bible is divinely uh, revealed and so forth? What does it mean to say that it's divinely revealed? And although as a philosopher one could think about those questions as well, and in certain moods I do, when I'm thinking about death, I basically just bracket religious questions and, and ask myself, what conclusions should we hold about death, putting aside whatever answers religion itself might try to argue for. 
So is it possible then for a philosopher in your mold to have a real conversation with a theologian, or would you not inevitably come to a point where you had to dismiss an argument that the theologian was presenting well, on? I, I could certainly have such conversations, and I have had conversations with, with theologians. I mean, theologians, like any other thinking individual, tries to persuade, theologian will try to persuade you of their views based on whatever evidence they think is appropriate to bring to bear, including their religious traditions. At a certain point in such conversations, the the, the, the conversation may need to steer away from the topic you were originally talking about in, in the way I was just suggesting a moment ago and turn to questions, do we believe, how should we, how should we interpret the Bible, let's say, or, or, or what evidence do we have for revelation and the like. And then you can have quite interesting discussions with them as well. Th th on those topics, theologians are often, uh, to a significant degree, significant degree just philosophers uh, specializing in a set of religious topics. Of course, as you suggest, at a certain point you may have to agree to disagree or say, look, we've run out of time, we're not going to be able to settle the question as to whether or not the problem of evil establishes the non-existence of God. But that situation is no different from the situation I face when I'm talking with another professional philosopher, precisely because the philosophical questions are ones where reasonable people can disagree. And so often you say, okay, I see where you're coming from. I see how you're weighing up the various pros and cons. I weigh them up differently. Or here's some other issues we'll have to get to next time. Let's take another question. This one from uh, Veronica Guimaraes uh, via Twitter. She asks, and again, we've addressed this somewhat, but it's a, the kind of question you can take on you know, infinitely, I think. What would the meaning of death uh, be sort of the answer for the meaning of life? That is, is there really a difference in the question. It's a common enough thought that uh, these two questions are very tightly connected. Kafka said uh, at one point, uh, the meaning of life is that it ends, suggesting that the fact that we die is in fact the central thing to think about in thinking about the meaning of life. I myself think that's, that's wrong. I mean, I, I think there are certain implications for how we should live when we think about or we get clear about the facts about death. If, 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 it's, if I'm right in thinking that the death of my body will be the end of my existence as a person, that there won't be any do-overs, there won't be any second time around, then that has significant implications about how careful we need to be able, how careful we need to be when we're living to make sure we, we, we live appropriately, uh, that we pick the right goals, that we interact with people in, in the right way, uh, that, we, that we don't waste our life in terms of what, we set, what the goals we set ourselves are. But that doesn't yet tell us what the appropriate goals are. And I think the question of the meaning of life is indeed the question, so how should you live? And so although death has, and the facts about death have some bearing on that, they don't actually settle in any central way, the, 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 the central question, how should we live, what's the meaning of life? That's a, that's a, that's a matter for further philosophical reflection. So how has your understanding of death changed over time as you've considered it and considered it and considered it more? What are some of the most radical changes? Was there a time when you didn't believe that the end of your body was the end of your life? Some of my philosophical views, my early philosophical views are lost in the mists of time because I thought about things from a philosophical point of view from a fairly early age. And so if you ask me, I, I can think of certain philosophical questions I was thinking about at the age of eight, nine, ten. So if you ask me, at that time, did I believe in a soul, I no, uh, immaterial uh, soul, I no longer remember the answer, although I rather suspect uh, that I did. 
but I don't remember having lost that belief, and so I'm not confident uh, that I did. If you're asking rather, all right, think about your professional life, you know, from your, from your 20s on, uh, how have my views about uh, death changed? I, I suppose in broad strokes, they haven't. It's many more of the details. That is, uh, there are any number of philosophical questions. We've, we've been skimming the surface here, mm -hmm. but there are some complicated philosophical questions about the precise definition of death or uh, what, what are the best arguments for or against the existence of a soul or how exactly it could be that death is bad for you since uh, you won't exist. How can anything be bad? If, if, if it's right that death is the end, then you won't exist uh, after the death, your death. So how can anything be bad for you then? But doesn't seem as... Uh, Epicurus, uh, uh, ancient Greek philosopher famously said, look, death isn't bad for you. Uh, now you're alive, and death won't be bad for you once you're dead. You won't exist then. So death, he concluded, can't be bad for you. Very few of us find that argument persuasive, but trying to figure out what exactly is the answer to it, where does that argument go wrong, that's far from obvious. And so there are questions of that sort that, that have, have, my views have shifted, indeed continue to shift. I'm, some, some issues I'm, I'm pretty much up in the air about. Uh, another question has just come in, <clears throat> pardon me. What do you think one feels after death? Ah, good. So, uh, since I believe that death is the end, I mean, just think about it. If you, suppose you ask yourself, what happens to the movie? What happens in the movie after the movie's over? Well, the answer to that's pretty obvious. Nothing happens in the movie after the movie's over. Uh, suppose you ask, what kind of music is your boombox making after you've dropped it and it's broken? And the answer is it's not making any kind of music. So I think that feeling things, having experiences, having thoughts, having emotions. Uh, these are things that my body is doing right now while it's functioning. And death is the, the breaking of the ability, the loss of the ability to do those things. And so I think that death is the end of thinking, the death of Death is the end of feeling. Death is the end of, th of thought and, and, and emotion. Uh, and, and so the answer is it won't feel like anything. There are no thoughts that will be had. There are no feelings. There will be nothing that it's like to be dead. Where it's important to understand that that doesn't mean being dead is like something, but unlike everything else. So there's nothing that else that it's like. I mean, there's nothing that it's like. Uh, to, to give an example that I, I talk about in, in, in the book uh, or, or my class, if you were to pick up uh, a ballpoint pen and ask, what does it feel like to be a ballpoint pen? The answer is, ballpoint pens don't have feelings. There is nothing that it feels like to be a ballpoint pen. I think the same thing is the right answer to say about what it will feel like when you're dead. There's nothing that it will feel like because you won't have any feelings at all. Okay, we're going to take one more from the public. This one is from uh, Miriam. She asks, what do you think about the end of the world in relation to your views about death? Gosh, that's a question that stumps me a little bit. I'm not sure mm -hmm. I thought about it in that connection. Since I do think that it's bad for most people in most circumstances, there are, there are cases tragically where you die in the prime of your life, uh, but you've uh, been ill, I mean, probably you're young, but you've been ill, and so perhaps in those cases death isn't bad for you. It, it gives you relief from your pain and suffering. Uh, most of us will die, as I said earlier, too soon. Uh, and so I'm not quite sure what the question is imagining about the end of the world. I mean, suppose that the sun's supernovas and somehow uh, people are still alive on the earth. Oh, that would be a horrible tragedy. Uh, be beyond the, the loss of the individual lives, the, the end of the world, uh, unless we've managed to colonize other planets or other star systems, 
uh, or perhaps she means the end of the universe. It's not quite clear how grand when she imagines the world ending. If, if you imagine the end of the human race, there's a certain kind of moral loss there that goes above and beyond the sum of the loss of individual people. I think if humanity does not continue, that itself is a certain kind of tragedy. And so although I'm not sure that death per se brings that in, because in normal circumstances when we die, uh, oh, there's plenty of others around, and, and, and uh, hopefully there will long be others around. If, if, if the world ends and there are no people around at that point, that will be horrible in a, in a special and unique way. Let me ask one final question here of a different vein. What do you make of your popularity in China, which has been reported on, uh, on China National Radio? It, it's, it's been a remarkable uh, experience. So once the Open Yale class, uh, uh, the death class, was, was put online, I started getting emails from people around the world, which was wonderful. And then after a while, uh, a, a large percentage of them uh, started coming from, from China. And this, this surprised me. I had no particular expectations. Uh, it, it's quite clear that the death lectures are, um, I'm not sure exactly, they're, they're, it, people are resonating to them for reasons that aren't 100% clear. There's, there's some reason to think that they are attracted to the fact that I'm talking about important philosophical issues, uh, but I'm not simply citing authorities. I don't talk about, here's what Kant thought, here's what Aristotle thought. I do say some things about some historical figures, but for the most part, I'm speaking in my own voice. And so I think people find that attractive. There's also some reason to think, uh, the evidence is indirect, but there's some reason to think that uh, the visuals uh, uh, are playing a role. I, I lecture in my, in my classes dressed more or less the way uh, you see me in jeans, uh, sneakers, typically a plaid shirt, flannel shirt. Uh, I'm sitting cross-legged on my desk. I seem to have tapped into some ancient uh, Chinese stereotypes about uh, ancient sages. And so I think part of the uh, popularity is here's a sage speaking about issues which they don't cover in typical Chinese education. Well, Shelley Kagan, thank you so much for joining us. I wish we could talk all afternoon. This has been great fun. Perhaps you join us again it's sometime. It's been my real pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all of you for joining us. We hope that you'll tune in again. We're going to speak with uh, Yale psychologist Kelly Brownell. We'll have details on that on the Yale News website in the future. Thanks very much. <laughs>